to A Better Way, the podcast. A Better Way is a network of people here in the UK who are striving to improve services, build community and create a fairer society. The aim of the podcast is to showcase stories about new and often radically better ways of transforming the way we do things, mainly by focusing on four areas. One, putting relationships first. Two, listening to each other. Three, sharing and building power. And four, joining forces. I'm Polly Neat. I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter. And I'm Roger Martin. I'm the co-founder of The Mindset Difference, which is a small leadership and team development practice based in southwest London. Today we're talking with Cathy Evans, who's the Chief Executive of Children England. The two particular areas that I was interested in talking to her about, one was how she figured out what her role really was as she made the transition from practitioner to policy influencer. And the second area is about her views on the contracting process. You know, when we contract for services, the waste that can occur in that process and what else could be put in its place. So let's get into it. Kathy, welcome, welcome, welcome to A Better Way, the podcast. Welcome, Kathy. Great to see you. Hi, both. It's always good to start with a brief description of the field you work in and how you think about the field you work in and what got you into it. You know, what what drew you into into what you're doing now? It is a great question. And strangely enough, whenever when you were going to be asking about my field, I, I realised that I've never actually defined it. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, to some degree, I think my field is children, children's services, practice with children, policy about children, that's been the consistent thing. And I think that's perfectly legitimate as a description of a field. There was a period of my career which was about practice with children. And I think that's really different from the field I then moved into, which was policy and campaigning, which is still really what my field is now. Just for your audience, can you just what you mean by practice with children and then and then that shift? So I, I started after university and not knowing what to do, because basically... All through my teens, I was very, very clear that all I wanted to do was be a fashion designer. And I went to university just for interest um, because I was going to go to art college and become a fashion designer afterwards. Um, And in the course of it, I realised I didn't want to do that for a job. So then I didn't know what to do. (laughs) So I I took a a full-time volunteer placement at a, a charity children's home see what that's like <laughs> um, and that that started it really but so I was a residential care worker in, in the beginning while I was training um, I got on best with the the naughtiest kids so um, I, I basically followed the boys who got kicked out into security units uh, and went to work in security unit with uh, young offenders uh, and young people who needed protection and so I was there for a long time and I, I became a manager and a trained in counselling. I specialised in working with boys who committed sex offences. So that's what I mean by practice. Wow. But I, I kind of, was, I was there during the time that there was an explosion in locking up younger people following the Bulger case. Um, and I was very clear about the benefits and the value of what we were doing with children who really needed it. And I was horrified by having to work with children who shouldn't be there. <laughs> so I kind of just thought, I'm going to get out of this for a bit, go upstream, sort out the system, and then I'll come back. <laughs> I never I never intended to do anything other than come back. But, you know. But you did go upstream, right? I thought if I can change the system, then I can come back to this without uh, seeing, uh, you know, anyone other than who should be here. And... <laughs> I love looking back on how how easy I thought that would that should be, <laughs> um, but so so that was the field shift, and it was also a career shift. It took me years into doing policy work to realise how fundamentally my sense of what my job is and whether I'm doing it well and what you can get job satisfaction from had shifted. Because in practice, you know, if you've had a good day or a bad day on the day, did I do something good today? Do you feel that, because I mean, I can uh, 
from a completely different perspective as someone who's who is a journalist specializing in writing about this at the time um but i definitely see the period of time you're talking about i feel like your voice and practice maybe has been going in one direction and attitudes both public and political attitudes have been going in the other and kind of hardening i remember that classic um quote we need to condemn a little more and understand a little less do you remember that there is an absolute classic uh politician's quote i don't know if you feel like maybe your place has been against the tide in some ways almost always and i you know i I kind of think that's my comfortable place (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting i started working in 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 uh in that situation at just at the point where uh the conservative government's youth decarceration policy written in law had really worked (laughs) you know and then uh, and then we started then came the border case that 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 started a different direction but then we watched the Labour Party become the carcerated party (laughs) all of these things were completely counter to my kind of my mind map (laughs) of what to expect from what what uh, from political kind of things so so then, yeah, I mean, not immediately, but I ended up doing a lot of campaigning against the Labour government from a children's charity. Not, you know, uh, while most were saying, "This is great. This is this is what we're here for." So I, I think I've I've got used to the idea that someone needs to speak out against this stuff, even if the tide is going the other way. Um, but it's not because I, you know, it's not because I, I'm deliberately contrary I just seem to find myself on the other side of the of the tide at each shift really because the tide on children has been a powerful one hasn't it and I think I I wonder whether um looking back um we might feel that a lot of campaigners and I guess where to me this is where you would be notable actually I think a lot of campaigners maybe did let the Labour government off the hook a bit when Labour got into power but also, I think they they went on on a trajectory that wasn't obvious at the beginning of that. <laughs> so, so on youth justice, yes, they had pre-trailed. You know, it was the tough on crime manoeuvre. So, one of the first pieces of legislation was that Crime Disorder Act that had been badged. You know, we're going to make sure that we can always convict ten-year-olds. <laughs> you know, we shouldn't have had to try so hard. Um, we're going to drop the age of criminal responsibility. We're going to drop the age of youth custody. That was all pretty scary, and it was youth justice. But in other respects, there was loads to love and to contribute to. There was all the social exclusion work and the, the recognition of connections and sure start and so on. And then along came antisocial behaviour, <laughs> at which point we kind of just went, well, that this is, you're already doing some horrendous stuff with with young youth offending, what are you lacking? <laughs> why, why do you want to go after more kids? But you know, so so you had to react to that, and a lot, and I think a lot of people didn't. But that's okay. <laughs> Just before Polly uh, zooms in on your reading of what's needed, what, a better way. Can you just say to the audience what your role is now? What what bring us up to date? Sure. So I now am the chief executive of Children England. Children England's membership body for children's charities, large and small, including ones that I used to work for, and it's been going since 1942. Oh. So um, it's definitely not my creation, but um, I've been chief exec here now for 10 years, and we've been on our own tidal wave journeys. So for a long time, we were the official conduit between government and the sector seconded people from our teams into into government to create the Children Act 1948 and the Children Act 1989 and 2004. It was a very collaborative relationship and mostly funded by government. Um, and the day that I took over, we lost all our government money. <laughs> um, and uh, we're really now policy and campaigns and, the, and building the capacity of our membership for that. Gotcha. So you you get your funding sources from elsewhere now? We're now funded exclusively by charities for charities. So between our membership fees and and charitable trusts and foundations and donations. But the work of the policy work agenda is still the same. It's just the funding for it has altered. 
I would say it's it either the policy work is back is is more creative. I mean, it's it's less it's less constrained because the funding has changed, right? Well, because it's entirely for us to decide. Yeah, we we aren't having to necessarily just re- respond and react to what the government policy is. So we've been able to do a variety of things that are saying, look, you know, let's look whole system at the thing that nobody's really questioning, like markets. <laughs> so this, this this traces the trail to towards the better ways um, network. But look at this assumption that contracting and commissioning is is the right way to spend money. Nobody in government is asking that question. No, no policies, right? But so because we're free to do it, and my members asked me to as the first trial of independent policy work, independently funded policy work, see if you can unpick that marketplace because it's not only it's not doing any good for kids and it's really not doing any good for our sector. So Kathy, to talk about because you were right in at the start of a better way. And so to a big extent, your sense that something different was needed across systems um, is really a big part of how Better Way came to be. So can you talk us through how what happened to, to you that made you realise that, that made you, what was your kind of pivot point if there is one? We decided at Children England that we needed to, if I can set the context, Austerity started, uh, like I look back on the beginning of austerity and the alarm that we all felt at the first year of cuts. <laughs> and I'm not discounting the alarm, it was valid. But boy, did we not really understand what was coming for another 10 years. But um, So part of us being there for our members and wanting to represent them well was to really kind of get to grips with the reality of how these cuts and the financial crisis and the, and the you know loss of savings, reserves, investment, council cuts. How is all of that affecting charities serving children? So we did uh, we did our own research. Um, and again, it was on our own terms. It didn't it wasn't attempting to be, you know, representative, quantitative. It was about learning from our members and their varied experiences and the stories that they had. And there were loads of things going on that weren't about commissioning and contracting about the marketplace, but then we mapped out all of the kind of the weather conditions, if you like, of the first three years of austerity. And in that context, um, contracting had become the means to solve it. <laughs> well, it's become sold as the means to solve it. So, you know, uh, there was more competition for contracts that were less money. So we weren't just being asked to do more for less in terms of meeting communities' needs. The contract value is going down so that do more for less, but also it was actually costing more to get that money. You know, and so once we started mapping out some of these really, really like uh, pernicious pressures, the way that these forces were working uh, on public and charitable services, it then started to look in, like increasingly reckless <laughs> to spend so much time and attention and money on competitive processes that the only the only effect it was having was to drive out competition. It was, to, it was actually to just say fewer and fewer of you are going to be able to afford to do this. So um, it, it was during the, we, we published something called Perfect Storms and um, one of the uh, one of we uh, one of the case studies that we had in that was an area of the country where they had undertaken what became a very notorious um, nine month commissioning exercise as a as a competitive dialogue, um, and it, it, it resulted it was for children's centres across a whole area that had been divided into batches and really complex, rigorous rules about how no organisation could win all four batches, but you could get into partnerships, but but once you were in a partnership, you had to stay in that partnership throughout the nine months of competitive dialogue. <laughs> um, and the resulting contracts were less money, um, had knocked many, many people 
out due with sickness and like stress during the course of it. I'd lost many of the staff who were employed by the previous employers because they didn't know what the hell was going to happen. But that that process, just the cost of the process, had been commissioned out by the council to a firm that conducted it, and that had cost a million pounds. There was, I, it, and and I, I, you know, it was extreme, but it was part of why it was extreme was because we could actually we had a, a someone in the council who was willing to tell us that that's what would happen, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know it was extreme. But I just remember going, this can't, this is an emblem for the nonsense. <laughs> so so everyone's talking about cost efficiency of of the you know the money you can get for a contract and how you can juggle to make, get better outcomes or need more service user needs. What's happening to our calculation of the money that it took to get to the contract? What about the money that went to the lawyers? What about the money on all sides? What about the money that was spent by organisations who didn't get a contract? And the better way doesn't talk about money a lot. So how did you get from this this absolute, almost like the money's the proof, isn't it, of something not working? How, how did you get from that to better way? Well... As we, we kind of processed what we found in, in perfect storms and what members were telling us, you know, our tendering ratio win is, is dwindling, it's costing us more to get less to do more. You know, um, what we realised was there are problems, with, there, are, there are still and there were problems with money. You know, we do want to argue for more money to be invested in children, families and communities. So we can't say it's not a money problem, but the problem here with this is competition. If, if you say this is a bad way to spend money, um, then you'll just end up with a procurement answer of how to spend it better. The problem here is cultural, and the problem here is about how decisions are made. And if you if you make everyone compete, uh, then not only does it cost more, but you destroy collaboration, you destroy practice learning, you destroy trust. And, uh, you know, so if a council goes through all of that process and ends up with a service provider that they still don't trust because that's what monitoring, that's what performance monitoring and compliance is for. You can't be, you we're going to have, you're going to have a big contract and it's going to specify all the reasons that, that you know, like uh, that you need all the things that you need to make sure you do or else you're responsible, um, you know. So there's just this distrust written through everything. Um, so not only is competition inefficient as a way of deciding how to get money from A to B, but it's really destructive. So we were doing quite a lot of work. We created a declaration of interdependence um, across union, public sector unions and our, our members. And, and I think it was because we were trying to take that that issue forward how do we move everyone public sector and everyone else away from competition so that we can collaborate in and with and for communities and families that was the work that we were leading that i think you know brought us a connection with some of the other founding uh, people in the Bethway group who were leading on other things you know like so there was there was a lot of passion and leading work about about early intervention in that group yeah I'm interested what you say about trust because when you say about competition destroying trust and the importance and centrality of building trust I sort of feel like is something that a network like Better Way can do really well and by listening sort of really build trust between people in different areas in different fields of work was that quite key to the sort of original vision of it well I mean I don't know whether that whether other founders better ways would say the same but that was definitely uh, like that was a, a driver and a phenomenon in running a membership body of charities who were meant to be like at the, at the very least identified with each other you know that's why we're all part of the same family <laughs> You know, we care about children more than, and, and we're charities who who can connect on that, even if we do really different things. And I'd seen the effects of competition within that within our membership family. Like, 
if some of if some of you just don't underneath it all trust each other, <laughs> um, or you're or you're spending so much of your time as organisations competing with each other, and passing. I mean, I had various members who were spending a lot of time getting very expert at tuping people from and to each other simultaneously in different parts of the country. Absolutely, and and I think if you if you know if you're part of that. Uh, contracting relationship and you know the pressures that it creates for your organization then you know the pressures it creates for another organization and you know what how they're going to have to behave and that then makes you not trust them even if you trust them as people but you actually can't trust them because you know how the system might make them behave precisely and and that that same thing but the other way around a lot of human beings (laughs) feeling very proud of the work that they do and why they do it. And then I am building relationships, being being committed to their community and their part of the world. Um, and then feeling like they don't know how to stand by the decisions that, that their employer has had to make. But also the people commissioning the services lose out in the end. Completely. I operated in the leadership and team development space. And when I talk to owners of other businesses like mine, they'll say things like, I don't even pitch to government anymore because it costs far too much to do it. And given some of the work we do is very relational, there is no relational component to the procurement process. So, so they just, they just, we're not, we don't go there. So, so some of the best of the crop that would be available to the commissioner and government in this case, that don't even end up in the process. I couldn't agree more. And over the years uh, of us stepping into this territory and trying to find the right ways to encourage collaboration rather than competition, with you know, like we we might be charities, but we respect and need good public service and good public duty, and um. And and so a lot of commissioners have understood, like this doesn't really work for us either. Like, but um, I've got these rules that I have to now obey. I can't just say I don't like that organisation and I don't. I, I would rather work with that one because apparently that's not my job. So there's a lot of human disempowerment that's gone on through this distrust in competing um, context. Just to just to just another reminder at the same time. Just, you know, it's hard to remember back, but we were in the peak at that time when we were founding Better Ways and we and Children England's challenging market. Um, we had the Troubled Families Programme doing payment by results to every every family that needed to be turned around following the riot. We had payment by results um, pilots for children's centres in like, but from 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 Whitehall. So there were. There were issues happening with it, like that when payment by results is the zenith of market nonsense <laughs> in in how you motivate people to do a good job with people who are in need. But um, but it was all it was all firing off at that stage. Work program. Uh, there was there was the, there was the burgeoning scandal about Ford in the um, tagging pay PDR and the and the work program PDR. You know. Um, there was, a, there was a lot more buy-in to the idea that, you know, like now that we're on austerity, we're not just going to cut things. We're never going to spend money on anything that doesn't work. So we had the social impact bonds. Like, so, you know, there was, there was rhetoric about there being a revolution that was created by targets and, and uh, tight contracts. Just, just for the audience, Cathy, PBR? Payment by results. So if you think about what you would like the world to be, right? So we've been in this area. So we've been talking about competition rather than trust. We've been talking about um, a system built on the movement of capital uh, rather than people. And I just wonder, what's your vision? What would the benefits be as well if we were doing things in a better way? For you, what's the most important aspect of that for you? Because there are, of course, loads of aspects of it. But in your mind, what is the, what's the goal? Um, I'm really keen that everyone, politicians, public servants, charities and businesses, understand how money works differently and should be 
transacted and thought about differently for different purposes. So we kind of, part of the reason that markets were viewed as how you make good spending decisions regardless of what it's about <laughs> um, is because we've just kind of said, well, money is money. You know, if, if you're spending money, get best value for it. But, um, but you know, even in the charity sector, we kind of reached some kind of point where we thought that gift is like old school, fuddy-duddy, unsustainable <laughs> donations. That's not what you want. You want sustainable income streams, like, you know, you want to be demonstrating, uh, you know, unit cost, price, value stuff. And that's not how how mission a mission works. But also that we, we found ourselves in a situation where every single penny spent by government was cast as spending. None of it was cast as invest, investing and none of it was cast as redistributing. So what I, you know, if, if we viewed... Uh, the funds that go to councils via Whitehall as investment in local areas, in place, in places and communities. I think it would change. Just even the name change would change our idea of how you should then spend it and treat it. <laughs> you know, if you're investing in a community, then what's the infrastructure of that community? How do you build the infrastructure of the community, like? Uh, the infrastructure of the economy, like roads and, and you know, like <laughs> uh, waste systems. If we thought about it in that different way, who would benefit? What would, what, how would that, how would it be better for communities? Well, that's when you need some of the, the granular mechanisms of, of, you know, that's when you say, look, it's for the people of this community to determine how, what they want. You know, this is where you have to say, if this money is for you, it's for you and your life and your family here. What do you need? What do you want? How do you want to be involved? Like that, that, so lots of the things that have come through dialogue through the Better Ways Network and elsewhere come into play if you understand those residents as being the, own, the collective owners of the, uh, of, of the resources invested in their community. In a way, this is a very useful context conversation for some of the other conversations we've had on this podcast, I think. Don't you agree, Roger? I do. I very much agree. And um, for me, it's all about building change out with people rather than doing it to them. And it's quite a different mindset about that. It is. And there, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but, you know, alongside these kind of dialogues in better ways, there's been the whole community wealth building movement. That, that has that similar sense. It's like there is actually wealth in the in the in the human and and capital uh, resource of this community if we took ownership of it and and invest in that loop instead of just seeing everything as a cost to be uh, controlled by uh, by officialdom. So so there's there's all of that, but there's also um, you know uh, so. Alongside it, um, we've we've taken our work on markets and our concerns about commissioning and contracting with a particular focus on the care system for children because that's our organisation's rule, and that's that's a particularly pernicious, awful example of how detached from the concept of community infrastructure care has become. So not only is that not seen as an investment in our social infrastructure and our capacity to care. It's become uh, private equity owned by Saudi and Qatari hedge funders, traded as a as a national hotel Trivago, purchasing, purchasing whatever care can be found for a vulnerable child, wherever in the country it might be, uh, by the week per capita. So it's turned, it's turned into shopping. It hasn't even just turned into spending. Is turned into shop state shopping from whoever is available. So that's why you know, um, I've 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 always resisted taking too strong a view about how much more public spending needs to go back into this stuff because I'm much more concerned about how. You know, we need councils to get reliable foresight of the money they can count on coming into their council to invest in the capacity to care for children. That is a completely different statement 
So I'm saying we, they need help to meet their care needs. Yeah, yeah. It's just the way you frame it, it it's the way it lands. I wonder if you've brought a, um, a challenge along that it might be taking up some of your thinking time at the moment, Cathy, that, that you could outline for us and then we're going to invite you to sort of turn your back in a very polite kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing what you say. And then uh, eavesdrop on a conversation that Polly and I'll have about, you know, what just occurs to us in the moment with respect to the challenge you have. So I think at the moment, not just not just I, but all of our members and my colleagues and my, you know, my friends in public and charitable sector, some of the challenges fighting against silo thinking and silo solutions. I, I, my general sense is we have to look bigger and connect, reconnect things. Um, but that can feel too big, especially if if the silo you're in and the solution you're you're trying to focus on already seems huge. Um, but but I see a, a whole system problem. It's society that's got market drenched. It's it's public services and the welfare state that have started to collapse and corrode. So my big challenge is <laughs> um, we, we talk about there being an energy crisis at the moment, and I think there is, but for our human services world, we have an energy crisis, a human energy crisis. It's really morale sapping. There are, there's a there's a workforce problem, but for, for everyone who's been, you know, we've been at Better Ways for a long time. I've been at this job for a long time. This situation needs a really massive injection of really big energy, human energy. And I'm not sure how to generate it when all of the forces in the system are energy, energy sapping. Where will the energy come from? to sort this out. Uh, could you just say a little more about a silo? What, what are you meaning by that? Silos, so uh, we've, we've been doing some brilliant work with, with young people recently to just revisit the welfare state. And just to rem- like remind ourselves, beverage, beverage wasn't just the NHS. It was schools, universities, public housing, etc. Now, I don't even, those are still really massive silos, but we don't cross-fertilise anymore. You know, so um, one of the most powerful things the young people have done is to say it's all part of the same tree it's all part of the same organism and they have to actually be interdependent it's no good having world-class surgery for a condition if the person who has the surgery has a damp home and uh, no one to look after them when they go when they leave hospital you know these things are interdependent um and so whatever whatever solutions you try to come up with if it's just in your silo then it still doesn't tackle the bigger bit. So, so one of the effects of of markets has been to compartmentalise and and specialise and break things down even more. So I think we have to be, you know, in Polly's description of me, kind of always countering the tide. Um, I want to push against specialism. I want to I want to chart a path back to generalism. <laughs> and you know, public service as as the calling but how do we how, how do we generate the energy to make that kind of pushback when the nature of this situation is draining everyone's energy that's my challenge i'd love to know if anyone has any answers polly have you got any questions or are you ready to wonder i think i'm ready it's not an insignificant challenge but i'm ready to at least wonder about it yeah <laughs> it wouldn't be a challenge if i did, if i already knew the answer <laughs> Kathy, this is where we invite you to just eavesdrop uh, on this conversation and then come back when we uh, uh, when we dry up, so to speak, on whether anything has struck you that's significant or new or or if there's nothing, that's okay too. It's just a, a way of um, getting more minds onto this knotty problem. So, Polly, what, where does your wonderings take you? I mean, first of all, just to say, I absolutely love Kathy's description of a human energy crisis. When I say I love the description, I don't love the thing. I absolutely recognise what the phenomenon that she's talking about there. Two main things occurred to me that I wonder about. One is, I wonder if we're actually, uh, of course, we're in the system is divided into organisational silos, but I actually wonder if part of this uh, energy 
human energy crisis is because we're in individual silos. So we're almost in our, a silo as a person. Um, and I think that's partly to do with fear, uh, fear from COVID, uh, remote working, I think has created some of this. Um, I think we're in a, we have been for the whole time period, Kathy's been describing, uh, we've been in a, increasingly individualistic culture as well as the cultural tides that she was just discussing with us and so I wonder whether what we're seeing is the impact of that as well and there is a real focus on it's not necessarily a bad thing but there's a big focus on identity um, uh, which is quite uh, can be an individualized way of looking at the world doesn't need to be and so my next sort of question is I guess I wonder if some of the challenge to those of us who are trying to vision different systems is that where the energy is right now is almost so far outside the world that we've grown up in professionally that maybe we can't always see it or understand it and we don't understand how to capture it. And so my biggest wonder is, who do we need to bring in? Who do we need to bring into the better way? Who do we need to call in to help us to think about this? And that's my biggest, the thing I've been wondering about in reaction to what Cathy said, but also for some time, is about, yeah, I just wonder whether the energy that is out there in people we're not talking to, it's in it's outside of the systems that we are worried about. It isn't focused on solving those systems that we're worried about. And is there a way of joining up with where the energy is? And that's my biggest wonder. And I don't know how clearly I've expressed it, Roger, to be honest with you. Well, no, I mean, that's no problem. That's the nature of wondering is it, it it's coming to you in the moment. So it isn't it doesn't always cohere. But I, I think there was that was great to hear that, Polly, and 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 I want to build on it with um, who was that famous American guy, Buckman, Buckminster Fuller, was it? Who said, "If you don't bother wasting energy changing the system, build a new system that's far superior to the current one, so that all the energy flows from the old one to the new one because it's so much better." So you reach a point of You've done things in such a better way. The common uh, uh, belief about it is, well, why on earth would you go back to the old way when there's this way? And I think your point, the point you made about individual silos and and the people living in a very insular way and not in groups or teams or uh, uh, some form of collective. What I wonder is whether the principle of taking people from the different silos who, who know how those systems and silos work, but putting them in a multi-dimensional team, a multi-silo team, as it were, focused on creating change with groups rather than imposing it on them, is the way to um, demonstrate a better way of getting outcomes than, it, than we're able to do under the system we've got at the moment. And if we can get multidisciplinary teams getting better results on behalf of children or citizens or whatever group they're there to have to support then does that provide a, a, a new evidence base and a new set of principles of ways of working that makes more and more people question whether the way we're doing it now is right or is effective you know so we, we break down you break down the problems in the existing system by having exemplar cases of a better way of doing it. I agree, and I think you're absolutely right. And that is what a better way is trying to do. I suppose what I wonder, though, based on Cathy's challenge about the human energy crisis, is whether actually um, to get to really make progress we need to have a way of bringing in energy from outside what a multidisciplinary team could consist of. Energy that's not in a disciplinary setting. It's, not in, it's never going to be in a multidisciplinary team. And the people who might be in that multidisciplinary team, I feel like what Cathy's saying is they are really lacking in energy at the moment. And that certainly is my experience. And so I, I guess my I wonder whether we need to be 
more radical in who we call into Better Way and how we do it so that we can harness some of that energy that is, that as I said, I wonder if we can't even see it properly because it isn't in our conception of the system. Um, I bet Kathy's absolutely bursting to jump in. I bet she's like, um, I can, yeah. <laughs> but do you see what I mean, Roger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Kathy, she's back. That's exactly <laughs> And I think I, I would encourage anyone who's listening to check out our website and the Child First State Inquiry um, work that young people have done. Hear, hear. Very much so. It's brilliant. I was. I just found myself thinking about one of the most stunning quotes from the, from young people's research where we were looking, we are asking them about neighbourhoods and neighbourhood life and so on. And actually, a lot of it was done during COVID. It was fascinating. So some of them really, like they were saying, that's where it all happens. Like my community is great. I love it. That's what makes living here special. And those for whom it wasn't, they were saying, this is really bad. It's just, that's the worst thing. Right. But there was one quote that just said, there's nothing quite like planning a railway to cut through a, a, a village to bring both sides of the village together. And and I read it and I was just like, and um and so I kind of think there were a lot of those sort of things going on, right? There are a lot of things that are making people angry about the current way, like the current state, the worst way, if you like, as opposed to the better way. <laughs> yes, all the all the the symptoms and the cracks and the gaps in this way. Um, but there's a there's a lot of uh, people driven to anger about stuff or desperation about stuff right now where we would wish it weren't so and it may not be targeted at uh, a failure of service or wanting to see services delivered a different way but that's that's human energy that is that is a burst of energy about the human condition and I and I think we like we need to think about how we respond to and harness that not to kind of uh, derail it or to lead it astray but we need to recognize that that's where that's where human energy is going in in, in a system um, and it's bigger than the human energy of kind of a group of multidisciplinary professionals getting together to co-produce a better way and it's not thinking about how do we do public services better or how necessarily or how do we do um, and, and we need to understand what it is thinking about yes because those are bursts of energy about um we care more about this place than, than seems to be recognised. We're going to do something because nobody else is, and I think you really should have done, but we're going to have to do it. Or we're going to have to defend ourselves because this is unacceptable. So um, so I'm, I'm aware of that, and I'm aware of kind of not trying to, trying to uh, kind of galvanise fights for the sake of generating energy, but it is that that energy is out there and it's and it's got more heat and more light than a crumbling uh, kind of public service system at the moment. So I I want to think about how we galvanise that. I was also struck by your your description. Sorry, just uh, yeah, your description of the individualisation of silos to people, not just uh, professions or or fields. And um, I think that's you know we are. I think it was Durkheim who labelled the term anime, like the 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 experience of human uh, disconnection and isolation while surrounded by human beings. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've long had um, a kind of a, a little pet campaign title of uh, like pu public anime fight for power. <laughs> but, but I think it's real. I think that's real. I think a lot of people actually probably have never actually experience taking part in a society where um where they didn't feel like that to some degree you were talking earlier kathy about how you frame issues and that and that determines how it lands i'm just curious about if you set up multidisciplinary groups at a high level in the system or even at a low level in the system on the basis that the system is broken and there's a lot of negative energy going into maintaining it and and complaining about it and the job of the team the job of this new group is to break it down to, to, to work from a more decentralized rather than centralized 
perspective. Could that not be a way of redirecting that negative energy to something that's more positive? If that multidisciplinary group is given some air cover, you know, they're given some license, they're given some protection. Well, I think there are some great examples just to, to get back to the positive. So um, I'm also in parallel to having been part of Better Way, I've also been a founder of the Human Learning Systems Collaborative. And there are some parts of the country, whole, whole areas and whole parts of the country and whole services who have said, like, we can't, we can't, we can't keep colluding in or deploying these untruths and these, these corrosive concepts. We're just going to do do something different. So, I, you know, there's the Plymouth work, an example of alliance contracting, no KPIs, 10-year funding commitments, mutual mutual responsibilities co-produced in the community, breaking down professional silos. It can be done in this, even in this system. It can be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what I was envisaging. Yeah. What we need to learn from that is that that's not about constituting a reorganising group. <laughs> it's about uh, creating the safety to to uh, deconstruct and then reconstruct the existing capacity, the existing services, the existing professional people who are dedicated. Many of them are feeling very constrained from what they know they really w- wanted to do in the first place. So it is possible, but I don't, you know, I think, um, it, you know, I, I can't, I'm an old in the tooth national policy person. Um, we can't simply declare UDI and say it's just all better off down here because we have, it's all happening in an ecosystem that is centralised and extractive. It's extracting our common wealth and failing to redistribute it back to the com- back to communities. And that's a problem that still needs tackling. It may not be that it's a better way network problem because there's so much to focus on doing differently in places and communities. But somebody's got to stop this uh, extractive nonsense that's happening up top, because it's because it's it's actually creating the forces, the weather the weather conditions that um, set people against each other and make Solomon's choices about about which services are in vogue and which ones we can't afford, and none of that engaging with what people actually want. I also think at the local level, going back to your point about human energy and the the low levels of energy within professional systems and individual professionals, I, I still feel that unless there's a real engagement with other sources of energy from within that community, professionals getting together to sort to think differently isn't going to be differently enough. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've we've we started as a really key concept in the Better Way Network was that those of us who were getting together to have the dialogue were coming as whole people. We were not coming as professionals. We were coming as whole people who had our own experience of being patients or who had um, been relying on the social care system to look after our parent or, you know, like we were coming as a whole person. Uh, we just happen to know each other and have encountered each other through the fact that our our day jobs involve this, this this view. But you know, we could bring anything and everything, like our our status as a voting citizen, or our local experience of town planning. You know, um, and I think a lot of organisations have realised, you know, that the job description is far less relevant to the people that, that work here than understanding and harnessing that they're a human being in this society. That's so interesting. And I think a real pointer actually for conversations within the network is just remembering that and remembering everyone has those experiences because that's going to make the difference between, you know, when we view each other as professionals you know, if I'm sitting there with the label of a CEO on me, that's a completely different way to encounter me than just as a person, even though I sort of pride myself on being exactly the same in every situation. It's still a, it's still a, a barrier. They see the CEO, not Polly. But also, you know, in my case, in particular, I had to, I had to be really clear with everyone in that, in that founding group 
I have no brief and uh, and don't want to get one from my membership for do to do this as children in totally like this is this is space for me this is my kind of peer group mentor mentoring session where I'm just Kathy Evans <laughs> um, and whatever we put out you know I'm, I'm perfectly happy to stand by it but it won't be signed by children England we do our own stuff no same here <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah oh completely so so that's free that's liberating and I think we should we should celebrate how liberating that is to have space outside of the job and outside of the job title to explore how it's feeling to be it to be involved otherwise we internalize it and we become that individual silo that we probably was mentioning earlier so absolutely kathy thanks so much thank you kathy it's been it's been lovely talking to you as always it's my pleasure how would you sum up the conversation we've just had exactly the quality and scope of conversation that i've always got for better way brilliant now that's good to know thanks again that was our conversation with Kathy Evans. In the next episode, Polly and I talk to Katija Patel. Katija is the CEO of Ideal for All, a charity and social enterprise that's based in Sandwell. We talk about making a user-led organization a reality and not just rhetoric. And we get into what being truly user-led means and how a one-stop shop, as it were, can deliver outcomes at far less cost than some of the way we configure services and help and support for people. So I hope you can join us for that episode. In the meantime, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with our future episodes. You can also get in touch with us and or our guests by using the contact details in the episode notes. Till next time, thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon on A Better Way, the podcast. <laughs>